Happy Monday, everyone. Welcome to the Daily Covfefe Live on Unsafe Space. Today is, uh, what, Monday, February 17th. I'm your host, Carter Learn, and I'm joined by special guest host, Gracie West. Gracie, say hi. Hi, everybody. Uh, Gracie, I failed to um, write a little... Uh, like bio for you because I kind of figure people know who you are and I was just like it's Gracie again but maybe they don't um welcome as co-host you want to maybe give people a quick overview of who you are and why you're awesome oh yeah of course <laughs> <laughs> well first of all and most importantly I am an ex-feminist I just have to say the I ex also- is the most important part of that that's right <laughs> um yeah, and ex-liberal, um, you know, not hostile. I guess, you know, honestly, I probably hold a few liberal positions, but uh, definitely have swung right in my red pilling. So recent red pill, actually very similar journey to Carrie Smith, who um, all of you are very familiar with, of course, um, and just had a similar experience with coming out of the left because of um, some of the political turmoil and when you raise questions your echo chamber on the left is is they don't allow it (laughs) so what ends up happening is you ask more questions and you get shushed so it kind of goes from there and by but by the time before you know it you're not even on in that echo chamber anymore so that's we have stream problems and we just had one so we're back oh i think i know why we have stream problems though hey carrie you have a beautiful frozen smile. Yeah, Carrie has a beautiful, beautiful frozen smile. But, uh, yeah, I don't think we can really see or hear yet. Anyway, sorry, everyone. Um, Gracie, I didn't, uh, I didn't bring, I have, your book is on my Kindle, so I don't have a copy to show everyone. But um, one of the reasons I want to talk to you about you, it, it, talk to you today, is you just had a book come out. Um, it's fiction. Uh, and I suspect that there's some, uh, autobiographical background maybe in some of it. I don't know, but I'm not sure. So, uh, why don't you tell everyone about your book a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I actually do have a cover cause I have proof copies. You can see this line across the top. It's, it's not the official copy because of that line. It says not for resale. So it's kind of my cover. Um, The book is called Breathing in Water, and it is, it's, I guess, I I wouldn't say it's autobiographical in the sense that my actual story plays out in the story, but certainly a lot of my own experience of what it's like to leave the left, what it's like to leave feminism, what it's like to be on a spiritual quest, I guess, and to experience, there's a lot of things in the book that I think draw from my own experience however can you hear me yeah but carrie the stream is continually stopping that's okay um, and i think it's because we're overloaded with video right now so tell us what you're name. doing say hi everyone and and tell us hi. what you're doing i'm picking the winner out of a hat look can you see okay carrie's here All to the pick names. the winner for the tuscan knits giveaway contest then we're going to go back to talking to gracie um <laughs> okay we have a just a moment with carrie so can you see that yeah can you see the names yeah. Okay, good. Okay. Oh, and also, can you see that? Yes. <laughs> I finished your book today, Gracie. I loved it. It made me cry at the end. 
Oh, yay. <laughs> so, okay, wait, I'm, I can't look while I pick. You know, we had almost 200 people enter. It's amazing. Um, and thank you, Gracie, for doing this today because I'm on vacation. Yay, and, good uh, for you. I really appreciate it. And I got to read your book this morning. It was really relaxing. Okay, I've got a name here. Shauna Stitches. Shauna Stitches. All right. Number 90. There we go. Congrats to Shauna Stitches. We'll be getting in touch with you. Nice. Thank you, guys. Bye. All right. Thank you, Carrie. We'll talk to you later. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Sorry about that, Uh, Gracie, everyone. There you go. Shauna Stitches wins. Um, And I think video actually should get better. Now, I know we're having some video issues. I think we should be okay for a little while. Um, so, you guys can all hate on Shauna for winning uh, instead of you. But, uh, sorry. So, Gracie, you were saying that the book isn't really autobiographical, but do you, were you, did you grow up in Oklahoma? No, I've actually never been. I, that, all right, you, you got me on that one because I've been, uh, I'm not done with the book yet. Uh, I'm... I don't want to say how far I am because it will give away some things that happened, but um, I'm enjoying it, but I assumed that you grew up in Oklahoma, and did you grow up, like, at least in the country? Uh, Where's your knowledge of kind of country music in that world come from? (laughs) Well, uh, it's flattering to think that someone thought I actually grew up there because one of the challenges as a writer is to put yourself in the location that the characters are in and really help the reader feel the tug of that area. So I had to do my own research and I have grown, I did grow up in the country. I would imagine very unlike the South even more, I would imagine. And some people say that Oklahoma is not the South per se. It's yeah, maybe some people who live there would claim to be Southern and other people who don't live there say they're not. I don't know. But putting myself in that headspace of what it might be like to be in the South or part of the Southern uh, U.S., what it's like to live in rural U.S., I know what that's like. And and it's gun country and gun co- culture is very similar across. Hold on for a second. We're just having like massive we're having massive issues with this. I'm gonna see if I can try and fix something. Sorry, everyone that's watching the live stream. I don't know what's going on. I'm gonna try and do something, but it means we're gonna have to restart this live stream. So hold on for just a second. Uh, Although now it's it's fine. As soon as we're not doing anything, it seems to be up. Huh, I wonder what's going on. I don't know. Um, Everything was fine for a while and then it stopped. All right, I'm gonna, fingers crossed, maybe it's fine. I don't know. All right. So you grew up in the country, but not in Oklahoma, in gun culture. Um, so, you know, there's similarities there. Um, can you give, without giving away anything about the book, can you just tell people kind of what it's about generally? Yeah, sure. There is a young woman who is a Harvard graduate student. She, her life takes a, a sudden turn when her mom ends up in a coma So she has to go back to small town Oklahoma, where she never really intended to return because she was thriving in the city, Boston. She was thriving in academia. She wants a career in journalism and had become sort of part of this liberal academic environment. So for me, that was that was a parallel for me, um, though not in Boston or at Harvard. (laughs) So she has to come back home and manage her mother's cattle supply store. So very different setting all of the sudden she has to interact with 
Southern white men all the time. And of course, for a liberal academic, that is their antithesis. (laughs) So she has to face these stereotypes that she had adopted in academia, even though she grew up in rural Oklahoma. She grew up in a single mom house, no siblings. So she didn't really have this sympathy or background of what it might be like to have brothers and dads and just be in that male culture. You know, I say culture, but maybe uh, maybe there's a better word for it. Um, and so when she goes back, she has to interact with this Southern white man about her age who is conservative, Trump supporter, very kind of I am who I am and in your face about it and I don't care what you think. And she's, of course, become this liberal feminist. So I basically put these two characters, I forced them to interact in a way where they had to come work toward a common goal, which is keeping her mother's cattle supply store open. Uh, So basically, that's the setting in which I forced these characters to be in conversation with each other on a real basis and not on a, they had to actually work toward a mutual goal. Uh, in the process, there's also this thread being pulled through the book of what is consciousness exactly? And she's a rationalist. She's a secular. I, I, I guess she's atheist, but maybe more like agnostic because she doesn't have a reason to believe in God or not. Right. And uh, so she's kind of trying to figure out where did her mother's consciousness go? And she comes in contact with all of these characters, so to speak. So it is a bit of a spiritual quest as well as a social commentary on things like the Me Too movement. This young man, this is one of the main characters, actually, Luke. His name is Luke, and River is the main character, female. He has his own story that you follow, and you kind of have to put yourself in the situation of a young man today and what Me Too looks like for dating. All right. We are going to try again, Gracie. Um Although now I don't know if my camera's working. Can you hear me? I can see you and hear you. I don't know if anyone else can, but... Uh, Looks like we're live. <laughs> I, I guess we're live. Uh, we were talking about... Um, we are talking about your book. Uh, man, I have so many questions I want to talk to you. It's just really annoying that this chat is totally unusable right now. Um, can people see me? Can they see Gracie? Can, I'm going to check here and Gracie. Oh, people just see a still image of me. Uh, all right. Still just a still image of me. Oh, you can hear me though. Okay, the audio is fine. No one needs to see my face. We're gonna go with fine audio. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be happy with that, Gracie. They can okay. look at you, and if they need to look at a still picture of me, they can see that. Okay. But they won't get their fix of a straight white male. Well, that's okay. I think uh, I think they can handle it. <laughs> I think they can handle it. Uh, well, actually, it's fine because now I don't have to worry about switching the camera and I can just talk to you. So, um, okay. I- I'm sorry to, to, to do this so many times. I know you just explained the book. Um, I think people caught most of it. So I'm going to kind of jump in with some questions because... Um, I one of the things that I wondered is so River was the character just to recap for people who missed River's the character who was in Boston going to Harvard a feminist um, who ended up having to go back to Oklahoma to her hometown and interact with these people who were uh, we'll say more conservative <laughs> um, and uh, one of the things that I was wondering I guess is 
for so she, River has a friend named Olivia in this who has a similar experience. Fellow Harvard student, um, they share the feminist. Uh, I won't even say it's feminist ideology. It's more woke ideology than feminist ideology. It's uh, um, it's more current than than feminism, and. Um, they don't react the same. I, I wonder to myself whether River has something that she, like a piece of her upbringing that she never really lost, which allows her to react differently than Olivia does to people. And I was wondering if you could talk about that as someone who grew up in a more conservative environment, went to school, became a feminist, <laughs> um, and then recently uh, questioned those choices. Yeah. Well, her friend Olivia and her are very different, as you know. She, Olivia is, she craves this more ethereal depth of life, you know, more spiritual, etc. Even though she's a college student or a, a Harvard graduate, she is still sort of the kind of personality who wants much more of a spiritual existence. And River is much more of a rationalist, much more of a... Um, she builds her life on truth if it can be found and that kind of thing. So I think just personality-wise, they're different, But which is why in my own imagination as I wrote the book, which is why Olivia tends to go more to the woke extreme because it is kind of like a religious experience. It's moral in nature. It has um, mm. purity tests and that kind of thing. So, but But River... She's just more of the personality of it has to be proven and otherwise it's not true or rational. And so and as, and maybe maybe her upbringing in Oklahoma does influence her ability to think outside of the box because she experienced a different world before she came to liberal academia. But yes, it is um, her friend Olivia is going far left as the book progresses river the main character starts recognizing the difference between her friend olivia and the average liberal and she recognizes at some point this my friend is actually not a liberal anymore she's gone too far left she's progressive she doesn't even want to claim the the label liberal right is there a reason that you cast these in terms of um country values and city values i noticed that um like you could have had a whole book set just in the city right um and having some of these same conversations but um can you talk about why you chose to not do that well i think rural america tends to be more conservative and uh cities tend to be more liberal and so i needed the main character to be immersed in an environment that valued conservative things like gun ownership and mm -hmm. um you know the the value of a small town life part of that is that you're watching out for your neighbor uh you're paying attention to the gossip you know you you kind of know about everybody everybody knows everything about everybody i needed the character to sort of be in that context because she she has no one except for her mother who's in a coma in terms of family her family's her grandparents are dead. She never had a dad. She has no siblings, but her mom is in a coma. So she needed to have this communal experience of people kind of watching out for her. And I think you get that in a small town, really. So I was actually, I'm glad you brought the small town thing up and the communal nature of it, because one thing I noticed 
that was um, interesting, and I don't remember what part of the book this was, but at some point, um, uh, I think Luke says to River something to the effect of, you can't just go burning bridges um, in a small town. Like, that guy owns the car dealership, and this person you're going to have to deal with, and, like, we're all this community. And something that struck me that's interesting about um, the ideology of the radical left right now is that it seems to be predicated on being able to burn bridges um, because there's always, you know, there's an there's an infinite supply effectively of people in a large city or on the internet. And if you have your little clan of, of people who are burning bridges with you, and you can go be pretty hateful and pretty mean and uh, attack people and burn bridges because there's no real consequence. You never have to see that person again. Um, mm-hmm. And you don't rely on them for anything. There's no sense of community with that person. You're just burning bridges of people that uh, are strangers. Yeah. Actually, I had a friend who read the book say, you know, this is m- as much a commentary on big city life and rural life as it is on anything else. And I didn't actually intend that to be the case. Maybe in some way I was working out this phenomenon as well. I've always been a city girl. Well, I grew up in a small town, but I've been a city girl through my 20s and 30s and recently moved outside of the Portland area, barely. I mean, I'm still very close to the epicenter, but um, have kind of reconnected with this idea of a smaller environment where you, when you go to the grocery store, you see your kid's friend's parent and you realize you can't just walk in, you know, unprepared to have certain conversations with people about certain phenomenon that's going on in your life or your child's life or whatever. And so I, maybe I was working through that as well. I mean, this book essentially was a practice of, I mean, it was written while I was red pilling. And so maybe for me, this rural and city phenomenon is part of what it, what it means for people to red pill in some ways. And you can't, you can't discard middle America, which is generally rural. And with the political climate, you have all, you know, like with Clinton, she thought she could discard entire segments of people because she didn't value them. And turns out she couldn't. But I really do think that there is something to understanding the lifestyle, the psyche of rural America, because it they value different things than people who live in cities do. Just like with this conversation with AOC and she talks about the New Green Deal. Where's the Green New Deal? New uh, Green Deal? I think it's the Green New Deal, but I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. It's not new. Um, socialism is old as, you know. Right. It's actually neither green nor new, but that's <laughs> okay. Right, it isn't. It's and it's definitely not a deal. No, 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 not for anyone but her. But the thing is, like, you know, you if you think about it, she thinks, oh, yeah, you can just get rid of all the public trans. You could just get rid of fossil fuel, but... In rural life, like you can't go anywhere without it. You can't run a farm without it. You can't like the, you just have different. It's a whole different conversation in a small town than it is in a city, right? You know, this is something else that struck me though is that the truth is you can't run a city without it either. It's just that city people are are disconnected from um, where things are coming from. Um, they're very much in a. Uh, and I, I don't mean this is a dig. I mean, I lived in the city for a while, too. But, you know, you're very disconnected from where everything comes from, where your food comes from, where your clothes come from, how things are made. Like, uh, 
you know, you, you where parts come from for like you're just disconnected from the reality of um, um, where a lot of things come from. And it was something that struck me about the rural life that you were describing is how I, the people there were less intellectual in the sense that they didn't sit around thinking about stuff all the time, but uh, they had to deal with physical reality a hell of a lot more um, mm -hmm. than people in the city. Um, and I mean like kind of basic physical realities, like feeding their livestock and, you know, mm -hmm. you know just like yeah. their own safety because the cops weren't right next door, right? Or whatever yeah. it is. Um, yeah. And it changes your, it changes your outlook when you're kind of forced to be grounded in reality in some way that you can kind of, the city is kind of a bubble. A city is a magical bubble where actually the things necessary to support a city aren't visible at all. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that is, it's a good point. One of the, one of the things that that reminded me of in the book was a conversation that River has with one of her conservative female friends. And at some point, River is starting to kind of recognize that what, what, what academia told her was true was only true theoretically. And when it came to real life and the real life moments that actually happen in her world, those theories didn't really apply or they didn't work. One example is at some point the main character needs to use or at least needs to have a gun nearby to be protected. And for her, she starts thinking through all of the classes that she sat through where professors decried the America's love affair with guns, you know. Right. And she kind of thinks through the fact that she grew up in a house with a mom who had a gun and it was very practically useful. She had to get rid of a guy who was kind of an, an abusive partner and she had to tell him she was serious by having a gun around. And the main character ends up needing to have a gun around for the same reason, not same, but similar reason. And so in her mind, she, she realized, I would rather have a love affair with this gun than with a perpetrator who's trying to rape me. <laughs> so... <laughs> What, what is what what seems to be true theoretically isn't exactly true in practice and that's what country folk understand is you can theorize in your mind all day but when it comes right down to it it might not be true and they know it because of practice they understand the truth by if it works in reality or not and i think I had, I, honestly i think you're 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 getting at something that i think is one of the fundamental problems with how philosophy and academia is broken, which is, um, you no know, good theories are grounded in reality. But if you allow, if you untether yourself to reality, you you can theorize anything you want. <laughs> and yeah. it's just talk. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, it really, it really, that's something that really struck me was, was, uh, how grounded in reality the, the people in the, in the country were. Um, another thing that struck me, I just want to get your thoughts on it, is uh, both River and Olivia, um, River at first, I think River changes a little bit, uh, but Olivia um, especially, but both of them, they went around assuming the worst about everyone's actions and speech all the time. If there was a way to take it uh, as an insult or wrong, they did. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, 
I wonder if you'd talk about that psychology a little bit, because I'm kind of curious what the allure is to someone who comes from the country, maybe is more grounded in reality, goes to academia and gets taught this kind of stuff. Um, what's attractive about having this outlook on life where everyone is, <laughs> everything yeah. everyone's doing is horrible. Yeah. So I think it's not attractive, but it's, I would say it like this. You have been convinced by a religious narrative. Essentially, you have been convinced to look through the world through specific lenses. And these lenses say there's this nebulous force, this dark force of patriarchy. Now, you you have to see it. Where is it? You have to look for it. You have to find it. And uh, and so that's the that's the task. Now, Everything that happens is seen through those lenses. Every statement that's made is seen through those lenses. Every, like, the question always is, is what you just said supporting the patriarchy or or tearing it down? It's so simple. It's very simple. It's like... Which presupposes the existence of a pervasive patriarchy everywhere, but yes. Yes, exactly. So there's this very skewed perspective. It's very much what's going on with this knitting community. I mean... They are taken off guard by the fact that these people are like freaking out about the dumbest thing because they think that it because they're taught to look through these lenses that say there's something there's some um, dark force at work. And now we've found it. We've discovered it. Here it is. And you're the you're the evil one is working through you. And, you know, really, that's it, I wouldn't even say it's an attractive worldview, but I would say that it's a required one. If you go to university, they they give you this worldview, and they don't want you to read Shakespeare to see what Shakespeare intended. They want you to read Shakespeare to see how he is part of the patriarchy and, you know, how the patriarchy has wielded his content against the, you know, small guy. But it's got, there's got to be something attractive about it because people would just reject it outright. Like, what, what causes you to not reject it? Well, I think, personally, I think people are religious. People are religious by nature. We need a moral compass. And society doesn't necessarily hand you one that says, here's, here's what's right, here's what's wrong, here's the bad guys, here's the good. I mean, I know it sounds really simple, and maybe I'm wrong, but... I think it's attractive in the sense that it says there is a reason to live. There is something important happening. There is something dark at, there's a dark force at work and that can explain suffering. And the, here's your task. And we'll give you purity tests along the way and we'll give you points, purity points for going along with the narrative. Now I have to clarify what I'm saying because I'm a Christian and I, I am very a, a very spiritual person by way of Jesus Christ, and I make no I I um what do you call it I I'm not apologetic. You don't apologize that. for that at all. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but at the same time, there's always the temptation to be religious, and I see these as different things. Uh, I've been in plenty of religious environments where, and I think it's a human thing. It's not just a a, a religious thing. It's a human thing because I've studied sociology, and I know that people. To have a group that's cohesive, you need to know who's in your group and who's outside of it. So if you have a chess club, people in your club have to like chess, you know, and if somebody shows up and they're like, I'm part of this club, but by the way, chess sucks, everybody's going to be like, get out of here. So it's a human phenomenon to say who's in our group and we all want to value something together and 
So I understand that religion is a needed thing in the sense that you have a community of people who believe and they need sort of these guidelines of behavior to know when you're stepping outside of the group. And so I see it that way. But I also see my faith in Christ as separate. It's a, it's more of a spiritual experience. And so I'm always kind of aware and careful when I'm in religious environments. Am I being sucked into this other thing? Am I being sucked into this way of life where people are monitoring me for purity and Frankly, I, I'm, I'm a little nervous about my book because, or at least about my Christians reading my book, I'm a little bit nervous about judgment because the characters in my book are not Christian generally, and they don't live like Christians, they're and I don't perfect. mind yeah. putting it out there. I'm sorry, what? I was just saying they're not perfect by any means, by the Christian means, right? Like by Christian standards at all, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I... You know, even as an atheist, Gracie, I, I mean, I do agree that I think people need meaning. Um, and uh, and I think we do live in a culture in which we don't really give them any meaning. We've torn down religion pretty thoroughly uh, as a society, and we don't really give them any meaning. And so maybe that's all it is. We, you know, oh, the meaning is to fight the patriarchy or whatever it is. Like, okay, uh, that here's your new religion. Um and uh, yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and uh, and it's it's not just meaning in the sense of the good and evil, and here's your purpose of getting tearing down evil and propping up good. It's it's more than that. It's um it's an explanation of suffering. Right. So when I got wrapped up into this ideology, it was because I was actually looking for an answer to a question I didn't know. I was trying to figure out some experiences that I had had as a female. And I was trying to figure out the messaging that I had also gotten regarding gender. It was different that I got from my mom than I got from the rest of society. And so I was trying to put it together and figure it out. But they they offer you an explanation of suffering that's like, well, here's, this is it. Look, here it is. There's this thing. It's called patriarchy. And here's how it works. And so it's almost like you can put explanations onto something that you had a question mark about. And so in some way, my book is also exploring the idea of suffering and where people go when they do suffer and where they go mentally and how they rationalize or how they think through it. And, uh, and yeah, so that's, that's part of it as well. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Um, so let's talk about, uh, let's talk about something controversial. Let's talk about the role of men and women and, uh, you've got a theme in this book uh, around men being protectors, which I know will piss off a whole lot of people. <laughs> so go ahead and dig yourself a hole, Gracie. Talk about okay. that for a second. <laughs> Gladly. I'm going to pick up my ex-feminist shovel right now and just dig a grave. <laughs> um, here's the deal. I have come in my conservatism, in my red pilling, I have come to deeply appreciate the role that men play in society as protector. I think anybody who denies that is in serious denial of some basic truth in life, which is men's bodies are larger than women's. And men have laid down their bodies over time repeatedly. They have been the ones that are slaughtered in war. They have protected communities. There have been meta-narratives about men who... This is the story. This is the male 
story of heroism, as I learned from Dr. Peterson, where men's story of heroism is that they sacrifice their bodies for the sake of the community. And they have been doing this for the, since the beginning of time. So this, this new modern idea of women being free is, is like this, this false idea that being free means that you don't have to be protected by men, which I think is ridiculous. It's like such a privilege to be protected by men because not all men are doing well. And then they are bigger than you and they can be a predator, right? So <laughs> yes. it just makes sense that having good, strong men that protect women or generally society, children, is not just what has been happening throughout time, but it is also so important, needed, and it should be respected again. It should be something that everybody, all of society just praises men for. And I, you know, I mean, and at the same time, I've listened to men, the men's movement, um, what do you call it, uh, MGTOW? Mm-hmm. And they, I mean, not everybody in it, but the more extreme ones would say, I'm never going to protect a woman. She doesn't deserve it because feminists have lost that privilege. And that's a, that's a valid argument. But, um, I see, I see them kind of uh, detouring briefly. I no, see no. the, the MGTOW movement as very, I parallel it with the feminist movement in the sense that on some level it's needed on some level, it's good. Like, it is it is progression, and on some other level, it can go too far, and it can just be a resent a movement of resentment. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I like to dis- I like to differentiate between the MGTOW movement and the men's rights movement. Right, the men's rights movement generally, there's a lot of uh, I think just healthy men who want to be protectors and want to, uh, but also want things to be. Um, not the deck not to be stacked against them with respect to like seeing their children after divorce or that kind of thing, right? Um, right. So there's a lot of good in the men right men's rights movement. Um, but I agree. Then then you've got the extreme MGTOW end, which is, and it's something I sympathize with, right? I sim I get it. It's like, well, you know, if if feminists want to tell everyone that we're toxically masculine, then you are not allowed to have anything to do with us. We're not going to protect you. We're not going to marry you we're not gonna do anything for you like yeah uh, i understand that i don't think it's uh healthy but i right like i said i i don't begrudge them feeling that way at all i i do think any movement that is based out of resentment is dangerous from my own personal experience in feminism it's not it's not helping society i mean i understand why people go there and why they throw their hands up and why they refuse to take responsibility for themselves or their uh, the society around them and, um, you know, I'm not going to tell people what to do, but I think I parallel the far, the extreme of MGTOW with the radical feminists. Um, and I think to myself, really, there's no, there's no benefit that comes to society from living in a, in a state of resentment. But at the same time, people sometimes are so broken that they can't think about society and the benefit that society should have. They're just so stuck in their own brokenness. Yeah, I don't think they're thinking about society, whether what they're doing is good for society at all. Yeah. 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 So um, this is actually relates to something else I was think I've been thinking about lately. I recently read, I think I mentioned this the other day on a Kofefi, but I recently read um, Sir John Biggs' uh, Fate of Empires, and he talks about the, the six stages that uh, empires tend to go through. And... Um, at the beginning, just to really briefly, there's, there's, this is, this relates. Uh, at, the, at the beginning, really briefly, there's this, there's this outburst where 
a new group of people spring on to the the scene of they you know they leap onto the the stage the world stage and they you know either conquer a bunch of people or explore new land or colonize whatever they do they there's some big movement which lasts a couple of generations and then they kind of adopt the often they're conquering people that were more technologically advanced um, not always, but sometimes. And so they they then like adopt their weapons of war, kind of expand and go through this period of conquest. And then because they've got a vast empire with lots of connections, there's a lot of commerce that happens. So they go through this period of commerce. And then uh, commerce leads to affluence. And this is where things seem to fall apart. Um, <laughs> right? Then they're they're affluent for a long time. And then it becomes this age of like intellectualism and everyone wants a degree and wants to sit around and think and talk and not do stuff. And that leads to this period of decadence. And and then the period of decadence is followed by someone else's outburst coming in and basically taking over, right? That's that's the mm-hmm. end of the empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's this is his theory. And um, the thing that's that struck me about this is, you know, when I look at specifically uh, Luke as an archetype in your book of the the male who is the strong protector who's action-oriented, right? He doesn't want to sit around and think about philosophy or indulge in sensuality a lot. I mean, yes, he's a guy. He's got, got like, does things guys do, right? But he's he's not a hedonist. Um, he's he's very um, he's very kind of action-oriented, and he, he kind of fits more in the area of the outburst or conquest uh, <laughs> stages of a civilization and he's kind of at odds with this kind of intellect and decadent stages of a civilization where um, uh, there's not a lot of those traits. And I'm actually, the, the question to you that, I, that relates to all this is um, a couple things, a couple questions, a couple things I want to talk about. One is, are men in general in the West losing the qualities like, one, one quality I noticed about Luke was threat vigilance, right? There's like very aware that there are Evil, there's evil in the world, and that evil needs to, someone needs to keep an eye on that evil, <laughs> and <laughs> someone needs to have the courage and willing to sacrifice to put themselves in the path of that evil to protect the women or society that they love. Um, yeah. Do you see a, I see a massive decline in that, but I don't know if that's just me. No, I agree, very much so. Yeah, Luke is an archetypal, archetypal male in that sense. He knows things based on practical reality. He doesn't know things based on nonsensical academic jargon. And part of the reason I think a lot of men, or at least his type of man, straight white male, Christian, his type of man isn't going to always be manipulated very easily by academia in that sense because they don't leave room for them. There's no space for them to have that talk, that dialogue. If you don't sit down and submit to this ideology as a straight white Christian male, then you have no part in it. You basically have no place in it anyway, as except for groveling at the bottom of their hierarchy, where women and and all the most uh, minute minorities would be at the top. So, I think. Uh, men react differently, straight white Christian men react differently when that's presented to them. They're like, look, here's this ideology where you get to be at the bottom as long as you grovel. It's like, (laughs) you know, I think the archetypal male that is going to come out of that is going to not only 100% reject the entire ideology because there's no room for him. And he is kind of this character in my book is sort of like an alpha dominant type 
And no way is he going to stay at the bottom and grovel and tell people how bad he is. But he's going to, he's going to know what he knows on instinct and practice. And so part of his story is that his dad early on taught him that you protect women. And he did it violently. So men endure violence. Men endure lessons through physical encounters with other males. And that's just reality. So his dad got violent with him when he punched his sister. And his dad's his lesson was, you protect women. You don't hurt them. So, yeah, he is sort of this um, maybe even a stereotype of what the alpha straight white Christian male would be in that context. And he does react to things in that way. But I do think you're right. I do think we're losing that. And part of that is that there aren't characters like Luke who have a strong male father in their life to guide them in that way, to get in their face when they do differently. You know, when they choose to punch a girl or when they choose to ignore this girl who needs help or something like they aren't being taught that that's that's not the way to be a man or something. And so Luke's experience, he's being taught that as a young person. And because he, he isn't adopting this ideology that college has presented, he just goes with that. And I think we have lost that. And part of it is I think we have lost strong male presence in the home, fathers, yep. who are willing to give their children lessons that are countercultural. I, you know, I can't imagine you writing a book where Luke exists in the city. Like, I yeah. can't imagine finding a Luke in the city anywhere. No. Um, no, I think to survive in the city, Luke's character would have to concede to feminist ideology in some sense. I mean, in some ways, he, he has to... In I, I really get into detail in the love life of these two because I want to show the power dynamic and I want to show the Me Too movement involved in it. So in some way, Luke has to concede to this Me Too kind of sexuality where he has to worry about like if he touches a woman who's drunk, you know, that kind of thing. So in some way, even though he's not in the city, he has to be careful about his own sexuality and how he demonstrates that because... You never know. And and part of this book was exploring that very reality. Yep. So, I mean, if if we're losing those qualities in men in the West, um, I think it begs the, the broader issue then, which is like, well, if those qualities are lost in, in the male population, are they lost in society generally? And are we at the point where our society is not being vigilant to threats. Our society is losing the courage um, and the uh, ability to defend itself. And um, which really mean like, I, I view this as like, so society kind of needs to be protected generally, not just individuals. And mm -hmm. I th when I look out, I see this complacency with respect to oh america will always be prosperous and america will always be fine we'll always have a good standard of living and things will always progress and we don't really have to worry about any threats from the outside don't you know that it's a global world and everyone we can get along with everyone and everyone's fine and the fact is there are real threats in the world mm -hmm. there are real threats to um any kind of system based on freedom that's inimical to many ideologies in the world and uh this isn't where we, you know, where we live is an aberration. And I feel like no one's minding the store. No one is actually trying to pay attention to protect 
what yeah. we have from well, internal or external threats. Right. In active combat, in active combat, feminism only matters theoretically. When right. you when you go to war, I mean, feminism only matters theoretically. So if you have a female soldier and she's in a war and experience, she follows the script of dominant male presence, right? And so this is also true. Any feminist who's been who's moving from one house to another, she'll look for a guy to help her move big furniture. So feminism only matters theoretically. Right. This is well, the problem. Part of the problem is that women in general have have had the luxury of assuming that the strong male presence isn't needed because at the moment it's not. See? Well, be, yeah, it's not because the the society was already built by the strong male presence. Yeah. Um and so now there's no recognition that it's necessary in order for it to continue. Um and not only is it being ignored, uh it's being actively vilified. Um and you know the other thing that this that something I was just reminded of um, as you were speaking about women in combat, I realized how in the past couple I guess it's been a couple decades there's been this huge push in movies to have a 120 pound or 100 pound woman be this badass who can kick the ass of 250 pound bulky guys all over the place. You've got the, the Mia Jehoviches and, and that kind of stuff. And it's really such an inversion of reality. Um, it, yeah. It's gotta be propaganda. Oh, it's 100% propaganda. I mean, I don't know, maybe you should tell me as a straight male, does that turn you on? Because I, I personally don't like those movies because I like seeing a big strong male who's aggressive. Like that's, that turns me on. So watching these little women like Aunt Charlie's Angels and stuff, I'm kind of like, eh. Like, I don't care about that script. That meta narrative means nothing to me. It's like, I really don't care if little girls can go, but like, kick butt. Do, yeah. do men find that appealing? Um, when I was younger, uh, I was, I, it was a turn on because they were dressed sexy and it was kind of hot that they were, could kick ass. So yeah, when I was young, um, but I don't know if it, my ideology was perhaps different as well. Now, um, I, I just find it, I don't want to say laughable. It's just annoying. It is. Um, it's super annoying. And, and I just, so now I hate it. Um, and actually, I think about the effect that it has on my daughter where it's like, like, what are they teaching you? Like, don't think that you can go grab a katana and take on a room full of bulky men. That's not. No, like, you die not, in that situation, honey. Yeah, That's not what happens. Like, it's almost like this feminist script hates women. It's like they want to put women in harm's way. It's like imagine yourself that you can go in and into these dangerous scenarios and kick out. No, you cannot do that. Right, right. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, look, and I've known some badass. I've known some really badass women in reality. Like uh, a long time ago, I did some. Uh, sniper training with a, a woman she was one of the people on the team and she was amazing she was a survivalist she i think she had gone to mit so she was smart she was an engineer she was a survivalist she was buff but all that said any one of the other guys including me who's not very big could have kicked her ass like it wasn't she was great and she was awesome and it was sexy but uh yeah i don't know that 
I don't understand. And it's less sexy now. And I don't know if I've changed or or not. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know so, if that's just because I, I got older or my, my ideology changed, but I don't I just right. don't find that stuff sexy anymore. I find it stupid. It's stupid to see someone whose arms look like toothpicks that you could literally snap in half, beat up giant thugs in a movie. Right. Um, and right. I'm not a huge bulky guy. Um, so I'm not, you know, I'm okay with someone the size of Bruce Lee doing some damage, but <laughs> it's, <laughs> but you know, there's a difference between Bruce Lee and Mia Jehovah. <laughs> right. So oh. in the chat, Daniel Keen says, I believe that those movies are the reason a lot of these crazy blue haired SJW women attack men at protests. They think they can actually hurt someone like me by hitting me. And, and I wanted to make a comment about that. It really grates on me when I see these women. I, I loosely call them women because they're kind of like wannabe men, but they're really insufficient at it. They act like this is well, first, their duty to be violent, and second, their right, and third, that they actually can do harm physically to a guy. What they're doing, unfortunately, is they're putting men in a terrible situation where, in my opinion, men's instinct, good men who are not broken mentally, it's their instinct to protect women. But when women are being aggressive against them, it's like, what do you expect them to do? And I, I don't fault them for hitting back, but the problem is they can do more damage. And so... It really grates on me when these so-called women attack men physically because I just think, first, you're in such denial about the reality of your physical stature. And second, you're not even being a woman. You're not, you know, we used to have this idea of being a lady. Being a lady was being not masculine, was being a, a little bit um, fragile, maybe, but I don't think women have to be fragile. I don't necessarily even think that they are. But I think if you're going to pick a fight with a guy, you are. <laughs> you are fragile. So there's a natural order to things, I think. And uh, I didn't appreciate that message my mom sent to me when I was young. I absolutely hated it because the culture was sending me this other message. And I thought she was backwards. And I think in some ways she was. But but she was also speaking a, a deeper truth that I am also teaching my Gen Z children. I'm, t I'm teaching my Zoomers to, for my daughter to value a, an, a strong, aggressive man. And I'm teaching my son to value a, a woman who lets him chase her and to be, uh, to almost be beware of those girls that are pursuing him. And I especially tell him this and my daughter this because of their personalities. My daughter is not a leader type and my son is a leader type. And so I recognize that if he is pursued by this whoever girl, he's not going to be as happy as he would be if he pursued the girl. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. No, I, I think that's generally true. You know, um, I, I do feel like we need to, there's a conversation in chat happening about fighting and whatever. I, I do think, um, it's worth pointing out that uh, got, like even tough guys don't la like fights are very random. And so mm -hmm. even if you are Bruce Lee, like you probably can't actually take on five big guys. Like anyone who's actually ever been in a fight knows uh, it's actually quite dangerous. And obviously there are people who are really, really well trained that could kick a lot of butt more than a normal person. But fighting is not, it's not, you know, movies make it seem very, very trivial, and it's uh, it's not very trivial. Uh, you can easily be very seriously hurt. But 
I'm also being reminded of, um, there's this phrase, I don't know, I think it probably came from the military. I, I, I heard it from military friends, so I assume that's where it came from, but maybe not. Um, there's this concept of like, uh, have you, you're familiar with this concept of like wolves and sheepdogs and sheep? Have you heard this analogy? Uh, no, I don't know. So there's this analogy. This is how, this is how a lot of, uh, these guys will think about the world, which I, I think is interesting. Um, they think about most of society as sheep, which is condescending, but accurate, um, and there are wolves on the edge of society that will be happy to prey on sheep. Um, you've got uh, at least one wolf in your book, right? They're mm-hmm. happy to prey on sheep, want to be preying on sheep. Um, and the only thing protecting the sheep is a sheepdog. And sheepdogs are very similar to wolves. There's not like, they're the same stock. Um, they, mm-hmm. are, they can be just as fierce and aggressive, but... Um, they have their uh, compass aligned with protecting the flock, not attacking the flock. And um, I really, it does seem to me that we are living in a society with very, very few sheepdogs. Yeah, I agree. You know, I also wanted to say that uh, I wanted to address something in the comments from Daniel Taylor, he says, um, women who physically attack men, at least men who are raised to protect women, are taking advantage of, dare I call it a privileged position. And I would say, yeah, absolutely call it a privileged position because here's here's what they are doing and they're not even acknowledging it. These these feminists that are attacking men physically, they're, they're not acknowledging the fact that it's socially acceptable for women to hit men, but it is illegal for men to hit women. And so uh, they're taking advantage of the fact that they're going to get away with a crime by hitting a man. You see it on TV all the time. A man says something a woman doesn't like, she slaps him in the face. And everybody moves along in the movie as if nothing happened. If if the roles were reversed right. and like this woman said something that the guy didn't like and he slapped her in the face, like there would be no end to the buzz and the talk that would happen about this movie. And yet, you know, there are just, you can't even count the number of movies or shows that, that where women are physically aggressive with men. And so there's this underlying knowledge that feminists have that they're not acknowledging that, that, that they are allowed to hit men and get away with it. And they take advantage of it. Absolutely. It is a privilege. Not, not, yeah. I don't think it's a good thing, but they are enjoying a privilege. Yeah, I, I, I tend to like to think of the word advantage rather than privilege because privilege has this ring to it that's like you're you're so special and above everyone else. Like yeah. half the population isn't privileged. That's not yeah. like a – that's too many people to be privileged. You, if you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth and a billionaire, okay, you're privileged. <laughs> I get that. But people are born with advantages. Some people are like – there are some people who are who are going to genetically grow up to be, you know, six foot eight and weigh three hundred pounds. Like that's an yeah, advantage, totally. physically. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe their IQ is fifty, and so they have a disadvantage when it comes to math or whatever it is, right? So like, there's people have advantages and disadvantages, and that's just part of that's just part of life. Yeah. Um, but the feminists, they not only do they rely on their advantages as females that they they have this special spot in society 
Um, not only do they rely on it in the sense that you're talking about, this is something that I've been thinking about just from a policy perspective. They rely on whenever you want the state to step in and do something, you, you got to understand the state is men. And I don't yeah. mean I don't mean the elected officials. They could all be women. But most of the people on the ground with guns enforcing the laws that you think should happen, those are guys. So to to argue that like, well, I'm independent because we're going to have a law that says you can't do blah, blah, blah. You're not independent. You're just outsourcing your your male protection to some other group of males with guns. Exactly. Like, there's nothing independent right. about relying on the state. Yeah. Um, so and that's, that's something that also has struck me. Like feminists don't actually contemplate the the reality of not relying on men, even though they pretend to. Yeah, and that's why I like to say that feminism only works theoretically. It doesn't work in reality. It's not a thing. It's not a reality to, to um, yeah, like when they when they go ask the state to take care of their their new SJW laws. Yeah, they're relying on strong male physical presence to do exactly that. Yeah. Um, so Carrie, Carrie is in chat, by the way. She just asked if my camera. Is <laughs> Carrie, working. I agree. I really wish that the camera would focus on Carter sometimes, so here, I can, you know, everyone can see. Here we go. Ready? The Carter is frozen in concentration. I am magically able to talk without moving my lips, so that's what you get to see if the camera goes to me. But I would rather <laughs> Other, just leave the camera on, Gracie. <laughs> otherwise, you get to see me rub my nose and drink my drink. Sorry, <laughs> I can <laughs> switch. Okay. I can switch back to my frozen screen once in a while if that's helpful. Um, yeah. you know, I, I, I was thinking that, um, this, this whole book got me to thinking that, um, you know, in some ways where we over, when I say we, I, I guess I really am meaning the left, but the radical left, but in some ways we, um, oversimplify the outlook on life and in other ways we overcomplicate it. And the over, the oversimplification comes in this weird thing where like, oh, it'll be super easy to change human nature and how people interact. And oh, like central planning is super easy. And oh, like, let's just pretend men and women are exactly the same. That's easy. Woohoo. Um, but so there's this weird oversimplification. But in other ways, they really overcomplicate life because one thing, a sense that I got from the book is you go back, she goes back home and as contrary to her schooling as things are in terms of human relationships, the rules are actually quite simple, and there's something that a five-year-old could basically understand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She has a she has a conservative friend who is just as conservative as maybe no, maybe not. Um, I would say I was going to say she's just as conservative as her liberal friend is liberal. I think her liberal friend is probably more far left than her conservative friend is far right. But this conservative friend is very simplistic in her thinking, and yet she's a scientist, she's a nurse, she's very intelligent uh, when it comes to science. And uh, the way that she thinks about gender is very simple, and she always tries to tell her friend, River, the main character, this is just how it is. And River hates it because it's she hates the theoretical simplicity, but she, she also doesn't like the messaging, which is men protect women and just get over it. And... Uh, she wants it to be more nuisance. She wants to be more in control. But then when life happens to her, she recognizes she is not in control. She does need help. She actually needs a strong male presence and guns. And so she's <laughs> forced almost to 
let go of all of this theoretical stuff that academia had convinced her of because reality was different. I mean, feminism only works theoretically. And reality was actually simpler at the end of the day. It wasn't, it, it was, it's actually, it's actually pretty simple. You don't need a PhD in gender studies to understand basic morality. Yeah. You don't, you don't have, well, you don't need a PhD to understand that if there's two people and there's danger, the bigger person is going to be better at protecting. <laughs> That's super, like you said, a five-year-old could understand this and they do understand that. Right. Um, right. So, um, let me, what do you, what do you hope to accomplish by writing this book? Like what's the, what's your goal? Why'd you write it? Well, I was writing it as I was red pilling. So I was leaving this feminist ideology behind and I was trying to put in conversation that all of this very conservative, simplistic ideas, ideas about gender that I had heard from my mom. And she, she said it in a particularly simple way even. And so as a child, it was so countercultural that I, I just rejected it kind of, but I also didn't have anything to replace it until I got to college, which was an entire ideology. So as I was coming out of this feminism, I, I recognized I have to put these things into conversation to kind of work it out. So in some ways, this book is a practice of my own psyche working itself out of trying to figure out why I end up walking away, why I end up believing that this isn't going to work, this ideology isn't working, and it needs to be left behind. And then the conversations that these characters have also point to the fact that people can teach each other something. I, I really hate to say it, believe me, I do. But I think even a feminist can teach you something. And it, even if what they teach you is that trauma creates resentment that can blind you. I mean, even if that's what they can teach you, they can teach you something. And so in some way, the book characters, what I want people to sort of hear is people who are really trying to have a real conversation and working it out. People who actually care about each other, working through the details of different opinions, and also watching what it might be like to leave this this ideology and the painful kind of extraction that it is. Um, but you know, I don't I don't leave the book. I don't think I leave the book in a place where everybody just has to believe a certain thing. I think that you you at least have to listen to people. I definitely felt like you were, uh, I know you've said this before, so maybe it was in the back of my mind when I was reading it, but I definitely felt like you were having a conversation with yourself. Uh, <laughs> uh, at times it was like, you're working some stuff out. Um, yeah. And I think it's helpful for people to watch that uh, mm -hmm. internal dialogue personified um, because uh, I think a lot of people are probably having similar conversations. With mm, Carrie, Carrie said she loved the goal that River had about suffering. So mm. the main character, yes. River, goes through a series of awful situations that make suffering very present in her life. And so she, this other character comes along and tells her what the goal for suffering is, which, by the way, I got from Jordan Peterson. I didn't make it up. <laughs> but the goal being don't let the goal for suffering is to not be corrupted by it. And so she liked that because she's a very goal-oriented type of person and she needs that kind of thing to kind of guide her. 
So she has this goal of not being corrupted by the suffering. And, and um, by the end of the book, I hope that that's true. But I, I'm, I'm looking forward to your feedback. Have you, you haven't read the whole thing, right, Carter? Not yet. I am. I don't want to say where I am. I'm farther than when I told you last. But I don't want to say where it is because if I said where it was, it would give away some a plot thing. But oh, okay. th there's a particular thing that is a revelation that I have passed. Okay, yeah. Yeah, there is a bit of a twist in it. And you don't see it coming, I don't think, much. Maybe you do. But I, yeah. I was... Um, but I mean, I'm, in, I'm enjoying it. And um, one of the things that I think struck me also was that uh, Luke... Luke really did not engage with the social justice ideology um, from the perspective that they expect him to engage with. He got right to the core of it, which is great because he isn't an intellectual in the book. Um, but he basically named it, which was hatred of white, straight Christian men. Um, he named it. And, and it was... I I like that that was his, I think that was like almost his original, I, he, he did that almost right out of the gate. I don't remember exactly, but it was like almost right out of the gate, his reaction was like, well, this is what it's about. And it was just very simple. Um, it was a very well, simple way to look at it. And I think it's probably the most accurate way to look at that ideology. And it cuts through all of the weird arguments and all of the um, justifications for a lot of uh aspects of the ideology when you realize oh yeah they they all have one simple goal right these people are bad that's the goal yeah and and honestly if i mean you being a straight white male you're not christian but you know you you're close enough in the category of people to be hated that you probably feel the impact of this ideology best um the the hatred is so obvious to especially that demographic because if you are that demographic of course you feel the hatred. It's like um, people say, oh, you're, they, they, they like to gaslight when a, a, a person in that demographic reacts badly to this ideology and says, and when they reject it, they just gaslight them by saying, see, all of your rejection is just obvious. You're privileged or you're trying to hold on to power. It's like this gaslighting of, it's not that I've just offended you and said that you're evil. It's that you're actually just trying to hold on to power, which is what I see that you have, which is what I crave. So I'm trying to get it from you. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's that demographic that it becomes so deeply obvious to them that this is only a movement of resentment and hate. Um, and so part of this book was really a practice in listening to that demographic, listening to Christian white, straight white males and, and their experience. And at some point, River has to really listen to him. They have a sexual relationship. And so she cares enough about him to kind of listen to what he has to say. And what ends up, what she ends up realizing is that she has been told, you can't care about what this kind of person thinks. You can't care about what this kind of person feels, what they experience. You're supposed to ignore that. And she sort of has this recognition of like, oh, why do I feel guilt for listening to this person's experience in the world? There's a moment like that for her, too. So, yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of Luke, uh, Carrier really wants to talk about sex because one of her favorite lines was uh, the line about if masculinity was toxic, she wanted him to poison her or something along those lines. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's in, it's in the middle of the sex scene where she, she, she thinks to herself, if masculinity is 
toxic than poison me, Luke. Yeah. Um, actually, this is we can actually touch on this a little bit. Is in that even um, even Olivia, who did not go on this journey with River, but but shared River's ideology at the beginning of the book, and and I assume remains uh, in that ideology. Even Olivia, as much as she despises uh, everyone in that town. She was turned on by actually the the racist brute. She was turned on by the worst of them. Well, maybe exactly. not the worst, but one of the yeah. worst. Yeah, exactly. And here is where here is where I am demonstrating Jordan Peterson's point, which is he thinks there is a deep underlying psychological need of feminists to be dominated by the worst kind of male. Like he actually said that out loud and I was like, "Oh my gosh, are you are you allowed to say that? You know, I, that was what I was thinking because I was still hadn't read pilled yet. But I mean, now I realize you can say anything you want. But um, at the time, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's crazy. Why would somebody say that out loud? It's like he wants to be fired or it's like he wants the world to hate him. But as I started to observe that in the world, I realized he's right. You have these these awful, the worst kind of feminists who are defending ISIS. Like ISIS would tear you to shreds in a heartbeat if they could. Like they almost crave this awful dominance. And uh, I guess in Olivia's character in the book, there's that moment where she's like, she sees this uh, awful, toxically masculine, you know, he actually is a racist. And she's like, I would let that guy man spread all over me. You know, like she has this moment of showing the hypocrisy that feminism is riddled with essentially yeah 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 well uh gracie i think we've kept you on for over an hour so uh it's probably time to let you go but um thank you so much for for doing kofefi with me i'm sorry for the technical difficulties at the beginning everyone but uh it looks like the stream got stable we've been up for an hour so Yay. I figured out the way to make it stable is just to make sure that my video doesn't work. So that's what we'll do maybe in the future. I don't know. Um, but yeah, thank you for joining us, Gracie. And can you remind people how to follow you and where they can get the book? Sure. You can buy the book on Amazon. It's called Breathing in Water by Gracie West. You can get ebook or paperback. Um, people have asked about audio. I don't know how to do that. It's probably expensive. I would love to put an audio book out there, but... Um, I, I probably won't cause I've spent enough money on self-publishing, but, um, maybe later I will. And, uh, yeah, people can follow me on embarrassing mom on YouTube. They can follow me at read Gracie West on Twitter at read Grace, Gracie West on Instagram. And, um, yeah, I, I appreciate the, the folks that follow you as well because they are on this similar journey or at least they are on a similar quest of understanding like what the heck is happening with these people so i appreciate the conversation that people in your chat have i love joining when i can and um i welcome your follow i think our audience will will like this book in particular uh because i think it's right up the alley of many many of the audience members um especially the women which is not a dig at the book but it's definitely uh it's definitely a uh i as a guy there's not a lot of like aliens and stuff and you know (laughs) <laughs> giant wars 
Uh, right. It's about relationships. So I think people, <laughs> I think especially the women will like it. Probably, um, But thank yeah. you very much, Carrie, for, for joining, or Carrie, thank you, for, for Gracie, for joining in the absence of Carrie today. Um, I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, everyone go get her book. And thanks for watching. I will stitch together the video and fix this. So I'm going to re-upload the Stitch Together video to YouTube so people can watch it later. So thanks. All right. Bye, Gracie. Bye. Thanks for having me.